Every golfer knows the expression, it's the sweet spot. <laughs> I should have brought a wiffle ball and then I could really go for it, right? The sweet spot, if, if you've ever held a golf club or a tennis racket or a cricket bat, you know that there's that one-inch space of real estate right at the end of the equipment that if you really connect, kaboom! I mean, you are bound for orbit with that ball. There is, there's no tenderness in your arms when you hit. There's no embarrassing ricochet when your mighty blow sends it trickling 10 feet off to the right. You really get a hold of that. What sports equipment designers try so very hard to engineer into their equipment, God has engineered into you. And that's sort of the direction for our message this morning. We're going to be talking about what it means to live in the sweet spot. This comes at the end or the climax of our four-week teaching series. We've been unpacking each of these four pillars or strategic themes in the life of our church. These are the themes that will guide our ministries, our focus, our priorities under God for the next three years here at MCBC. And this morning we come to the final and sort of the the wrap that encompasses them all, the final theme, which is joy itself. I'm not sure why there's a box of tissues on the... It's not that kind of a sermon. we put those over here. We're going to talk about joy, but uh, we're going to take a different trajectory in getting there. And the reason we wanted to start with that identification of the sweet spot is realizing that what exists not only in the world of sports is also a prevalent reality in life. I mean, you know when you're in the zone, right? The sweet spot, your husband remembers your anniversary on the actual date of the occasion, tax refund comes in early and it's more than you thought it was going to be. The flight attendant bumps you up the first class. It's the sweet spot. It's like you're cycling downhill in life with the wind at your back. And again, the central theme of the message this morning is this. What we have tried so hard to engineer into good equipment is something that God has designed into your life. There is a zone, a region in your life that you were meant to live, a place that you were meant to dwell. He tailored, if you'd like, all the curves and dimensions of your life so that you could occupy a particular spot in the jigsaw puzzle of the world and of the church, of your family, and of the neighborhood. And life just begins to make a lot more sense when you know that you're living in the sweet spot. But how do you know? One of the starting places is always by accepting God's design in your life. And that's not easy to do. By saying, I am as God made me to be. Uh, To put it, and maybe it feels like we're pushing, but to put it artistically, you know, da Vinci painted only one Mona Lisa. And Beethoven wrote only one Fifth Symphony. And maybe you don't identify with either one of those But God made only one of you, and God never makes junk. 
You are the workmanship of God created in his name to do good works in Christ. And he has designed you and tailored your life for a one-of-a-kind assignment in the world. And remember we said last week when we were talking about facilities itself, that facilities are only a tool, only an enabler. Facilities matter because people matter. People have bodies, therefore we provide facilities. But ultimately, whatever we build is about the people that we hope to reach. And we use that beautiful expression that comes out of the book of 1 Peter. It says that brick by brick, life by life, God is building a kingdom here amongst us, a spiritual house. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to that verse. It's in 1 Peter. It's in chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You'll remember these words if you were here last week. And you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. You are a, a royal priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You have a task. You have a role in the life of God's world that is unique to you. And in understanding that role, one of the key places to begin is by discovering how God has put you together. Your abilities unveil your purpose. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you flip ahead a couple of chapters, says in verse 11, if anyone ministers, let them do it with the abilities that God supplies, so that in all things God gets glorified through Jesus Christ. When God gives an assignment, here's the idea, when God gives an assignment, he also gives the skill set necessary. So you study your skills, you study your gifts, your abilities, as a way of understanding your assignment. So look at you. Look at the people around you. For some of you, your your uncanny ease with planning and administration, it baffles me, but I'm glad you're good at it. Uh, For others, your, your quenchless curiosity about current affairs and matters of the bigger world in which God has placed us. There are people who run into the kitchen, they see a leaky faucet, and they run right back out again. And there are people that run into the kitchen, they see it, and they go into their truck and grab the wrench, and they get on their knees, and they just fix it. They live for that stuff. Others hear, hey, it's time for our annual budget presentation in a meeting after the church today, and you think, I'm not going to be able to get out of here fast enough. And then there are some who will go running for their calculators and say, this is right in my wheelhouse. This is where I think. This is how I can pitch in. But what about you? I mean, what is it in your makeup of personality, gifts, abilities that would help you understand the assignment God has given to you? According to Scripture, each has been given unique abilities. And as God calls, he equips. This is the language of the gifts. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, that beautiful chapter, says the Spirit of God has given each one of you a special way of serving other people. It's easy to, to feel like, like I'm not adequate because we tend to be a culture that worships the superstars. I don't have anything to offer, nothing like them. But the apostle didn't say, the apostle Paul, that the Spirit of God has given some of us gifts or a few of us gifts. It says the Spirit has given each of us a special way of serving other people. So enough of this self-deprecating idea that says I can't do anything. 
That's actually dishonoring to God when you think about it. But also enough of the opposite that says, I have to do everything. And if you feel that way, like it's all on me, and if I don't do it, the world is going to collapse. I have to do everything. You are not God's Savior to the world. But you are one part of his solution to society. Imitate Paul here. The Apostle Paul said, our goal is to stay within the boundaries of God's plan for us. 2 Corinthians 10.13, if you want to write that down. Our goal is to stay within the boundaries of God's plan for us. Listen to this way of of paraphrasing that. Again, 2 Corinthians 10.13. We're not trying to make outrageous claims here. We're sticking to the limits of what God has set for us. But there can be no question that those limits reach out to and include you. So the sermon this morning is is first of all about finding your sweet spot, that tailor-made zone that God has set in motion for you, that place that honors God and helps others and thrills you. Because we're going to land in the place of joy. Have you noticed actually when you go to Starbucks or whatever your local coffee hole is, that it's your barista or the cashier at the grocery store. They're pretty tatted up nowadays, right? Good sleeves, lots of ink, good color. You weren't born that way. You weren't born with instructions tattooed on your forearms. When your parents brought you home from the hospital, you didn't come with an instruction manual. These are the unique skills that I have given to Cindy. And these are the tasks that I have set in mind for her. But very early on, you began to notice what those things might be. Those skills that get revealed. Those knacks and personality traits that that get uncovered. God gave those things. Listen to what it says here. This is Ephesians 2.10. It's God himself who's made us. And he made who we are and what he's given us. And he's given us new life in Christ. But long ages ago, he planned how we should spend our lives helping others. And here's the point, just to narrow it into an even more pointed focus. No one has quite the unique mix of skills, personality, and experience as you. The Lord looks from the heavens above, it says in Psalm 33, and He sees all the children of the earth. And from the place of His dwelling, He looks on all of those inhabitants of the earth and He fashions their lives individually. And then He considers all their works. Every single child, cue the sound of a child cooing, every single child is a unique idea from the mind of God. You're tailor-made. Isaiah 43 says, He formed and made each one of you. It's not like there's a whole pile of identical bricks here and the mason is just putting them together in a way that could be completely interchangeable. A bunch of similar bolts in a mechanic's drawer getting tightened on. No, you're it. And if you don't get to be you, The world misses out on the you that God created you to be. That makes sense? Listen to how one writer puts it. 
It says, you're like heaven's Halley's Comet. We have one shot at seeing you shine. You offer a gift to the world that no one else brings, and if you don't bring it, it won't be brought. Wow. I think that's why Paul said, again, God makes everything work together, and he will work in you, in your life, for his most excellent harmony. So when gifted teachers are aiding struggling students, when skilled managers are, are disentangling bureaucratic knots, when, when dog lovers love dogs and cat lovers love cats, and they don't talk to each other, by the way, but uh, when, when, when number crunchers balance accounts, whatever it is, when you and I do what we were most created to do for the glory of God, we are, and this is the beautiful language of Romans 12, marvelously functioning together as part of the body of Christ. You don't play a small part because there are no small parts to play. All of you together are the body of Christ. That's the language of the Bible. Each one of you is separate and necessary. 1 Corinthians 12. Separate and necessary. Unique, but essential. No one else has been given your lines to speak. The author of everything gave you a part, and it's for you and you alone to play. You live your life, or it won't be lived. We need you to be you. And all you have to give is what's been given to you. You concentrate on that, on who you are and what you have. And, and these words, actually, wise words from the Scriptures, from Galatians 6, don't compare yourself with other people. Each of you should take responsibility for doing your creative best with your own lives because God never called you to be anyone other than you. And He calls you to be the best you that you can be. I guess the big question is then, who are you? Who are you? Remember, we said this about three weeks ago. You were born pre-packed. None of us are that empty whiteboard that we like to imagine sometimes that kids are. You're born pre-wired. God looked into your life, determined your assignment, gave you the tools to do the job. And so he looks out and says, Heather's going to, she's going to run a research department, install lots of curiosity and, a, and an aptitude for science. And Johinder, he's going to lead a school. So install in him a, a healthy share of management skills and wisdom. I need Lucia to come alongside those who are sick and dying. Just uh, uh, an abundant share of compassion. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, Karina is still, after 26 and a half years, married to Richard. Lots and lots of patience. Lots of patience. God packed you on purpose for a purpose. And if news to you, then there's a good chance that you may have been living out of the wrong bag. You know that image? You go to the airport, you disembark from your flight, you go down into the, um, <clears throat> into the baggage kiosk and you watch as a, a steady stream of sometimes identical-looking pieces of luggage just rotate around. And you, you wait and you watch and finally you take your chance. You leap in there among the crowds, you grab it, you pull it out, you walk over to the benches, you look at it, and you realize, that's not mine. That's not it. Now you've got two choices, right? You can say, 
is close enough. I'll take it home, and whatever's in there, I'll wear. You know, could be the wrong gender, the wrong size, but I'll just live out of somebody else's bag with all of their stuff. Or you could put it back and get your own bag and live out your days with what was made and packed for you. When you live out of somebody else's dreams or aspirations for your life, you know how that ends up, right? You wind up stressed out and sour and cranky. And that kind of misery has a way of affecting families. It's what populates bars. It's what pays the salaries of therapists. It's like somebody sucked all the sparkle out of our days. Week after week of the same energy sapping sameness. Because nothing fits. It's not why I was made. This just doesn't tweak a chord of joy in my life. It, it's the wrong bag. It's why the final word on this series is going to be the little word joy. There is a joy that comes in living out God's purpose and design for your life that is unparalleled. We could accomplish everything that we're setting out to do. As you glance around the room, all of the themes and all of the tasks and objectives underneath that as we're unleashing the power of discipleship and and leadership and service and potential facilities, we could do all of that. But if the road in getting there is filled with nothing but unrelenting drudgery of people serving in areas where they shouldn't be serving because they're compelled by some sense of misdefined responsibility to do it. If it's devoid of joy and significance, then it will have failed. Nehemiah has been kind of our guide through the series. And And Sheldon tells me there's some 250 or so of you meeting in small groups through the course of the week, working through these five different subjects. And Nehemiah has been your guide. And when you get to this final theme, this final subject, you're going to be inside Nehemiah in chapter 8. This is a milestone event in the life of God's people. They've fulfilled their purpose. They've accomplished the task. After after a desperate prayer crusade and a careful strategy and recruiting the workers, they rebuilt Jerusalem. They did it in 52 days. That's a work of an army empowered by God. And you see them in Nehemiah 8 in a mode of absolute joy and celebration. It's just implacable joy. There's worship and feasting and recognition. And it's in the context of that chapter that we get the verse that I think many of you will know, even if you don't know where it's from. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy is a formidable force when it's unleashed in the lives of God's people. Joy can give persistence in the face of of disillusionment. It can give you resilience in the face of animosity. It can give you strength in the face of fear. I remember a couple of years ago, we, we preached just for a couple of weeks on the subject of, of happiness. And we talked about what might be called the happiness paradox. And this, this might tweak the memory of some of you who were around back then. But the key idea was this, that you will never really be happy in life if your ultimate goal in life is to be happy. That's the paradox. And hear me out on that. 
The Bible seldom uses the word happiness, but it is resplendent with the word joy. And that is the abundant theme from beginning to end. Because it turns out that happiness, as we understand it, is one of those things that only ever comes as a byproduct of something else, something bigger, something better. There's something that in the end matters far more than just happiness, which is fleeting, which comes and goes. And you might want to call it the joyful life, but maybe, it, maybe you might want to call it at an even deeper level the, the meaningful life, the significant life. Because there's a huge difference between the pursuit of meaning and the pursuit of happiness. And it turns out that happiness without meaning actually is this shallow thing, and it's rather self-centered. People think, I'll be really happy if the circumstances of my life line up the way that I'd always hoped. I'll be happy if my desires are satisfied. I'll be happy if I can avoid pain and if everybody likes me. And so I focus on the circumstances of my life, which as it turns out, are often the things over which we have the least control. The circumstances of our life. And we think, I'll be, I'll be happy when finally I get a job. Have you seen people who have jobs? <laughs> or... I'll be happy when I'm finally done with my job and I can retire. It's really interesting. They do studies on this stuff. People's free time goes up, but their happiness actually goes down for a while because they're trying to figure out who they are. What's the significance of my life now? People think they get a chunk of money and and that's going to make them a lot happier. And for a time it does. They buy new stuff. They buy a, a bigger tent to put their stuff in, but it goes away really quickly. Happiness goes up for a moment. Sometimes meaning goes down. People don't have kids, and they think, if we could just get some kids into the house, that would make us happy. We just had kids, and they think, it's going to be beautiful. It's just these radiant eyes and these cherub-like, plump little arms reaching up, love me, mommy, daddy, love me. And then they'll go to school, and they'll come home with straight A's on the report card, and they'll have this starring role in the school play, and We have all these ideas about what's going to make us happy. And what we actually get are dirty diapers and dirty bottles and temper tantrums and sleepless nights. And having children is costly and it's exhausting and it's stressful and it's just draining. And here's the truth about it. And sorry, teenagers, but you're going to find out soon enough. Happiness goes down for your parents. But you know what goes up? Meaning, significance, joy. Begin to feel the difference here? If my only aim in life is happiness, what winds up happening is that I get neither happiness nor meaning. But if you aim for significance, I want to live the life for which I was designed, invest in things that matter, then not only is there a current of joy running through your life, But often there'll be these moments of sheer delight that just get thrown in along with it. I want to make four just really quick, a minute each, observations about how joy ties in to all of this. And then we're going to end early and we're going to do something by way of response. Are you okay with ending early? Don't want to end early today? Okay. We're good. (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Four observations about joy. Here's the first. 
Uh, these are not in your notes, by the way. I'll explain your notes in just a minute. But if you want to write them down, here's the first. Joy comes through generosity. Joy comes when we practice simple acts of kindness and generosity. Not when people do for us the things that we want, but when we do for other people the things that they need. There's this weird truth about us. We think we'll be happy when we get everything that we want. But actually, both happiness and meaning turn out to be a lot more linked to what we give than what we get. This is what Jesus was on about again and again and again. Just a simple cup of cold water when it's given in my name is transforming not only for the recipient, but for the giver. It turns out that joy is far more associated with what we give than what we get. And the single most reliable activity in increasing a person's sense of well-being is when they can act out in kindness for somebody else. Turns out Jesus knew what he was talking about. If you find your life absolutely in the dumpers, get out and do something for someone else. It's a reminder that you can't change your circumstances, but you can change how you are in your circumstances. And God can change you in that way. So that's the first. Joy comes through generosity. Here's the second one, and this is, uh, this is baffling for a secular world. Suffering and joy can coexist when there's meaning. Suffering and joy can coexist when there's meaning. Now, happiness cannot coexist with suffering, right? Suffering is, is overwhelming. And let's not pretend that it's anything but that. But it's powerless to stop the meaningful life. The great case study in this actually comes at the very end of Nehemiah. If you get to the end of the story, you'll see that it ends on a sour note with profound suffering. A suffering that is largely caused by the same architects who rebuilt Jerusalem. Pastor Sheldon rightly calls Nehemiah at the end a cautionary tale. People have lost their delight. Their delight in God, their delight in in being called together with a purpose. And without a compelling purpose, the whole thing came crashing down. First, their inner lives were ruined. And then their outer lives, physically, the walls they worked so hard to rebuild crumbled into disrepair. They lost their first love. It can happen. And most often it happens when our focus, instead of being on joy and significance and purpose, becomes on our own self-indulgence. But there are others. There are those who are deep in the counsel of God who know the truth in these words, that sorrow may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? And when you look carefully at human beings, when you look in the Bible, you find this oddity of joy present even in the midst of great sorrow because it's unstoppable. That's the second thing. Suffering and joy can still coexist. Here's the third thing. Joy flows from a wise investment in people. Joy comes from an investment in people. Meaning comes when I invest my life in what matters most to God. And it turns out what matters most to God is people, is relationships. Discipleship is all about building relationships. Mentoring relationships where 
people are investing in you and you're investing in others in order to facilitate that deeper, closer, wider relationship within the community of God's people. Leadership is all about people. It's about influencing people. Service is the, is the currency in which God's people interact with the world. Even facilities, we said last week. Facilities matter because people matter. And good facilities are things that enable the work that people want to do together. People matter to God, and so they matter to us. And they are the investment that we make with joy in mind. Here's the fourth thing. Joy is always rooted in your spiritual circumstances. Not your physical, not your financial, not your vocational circumstances. And here's what we mean. Sometimes happiness depends an awful lot on, on where you live, uh, on whose name is on the paycheck that you get at the end of the week, on how much money is in your RRSP. Happiness depends on these sorts of things. There's a very interesting relationship actually between happiness and place. Happiness is an emotion in the place where you live. Uh, a lot of you live in and around Mississauga. Why do you do that? I mean, this is a pricey place to live. Did, did you read in the Mississauga News? Average home price in Mississauga now $800,000. Monthly rent average $2,300. And yet people still team to the area, I think because there's this idea that, that it's going to make me happy. I live here and it'll, it'll make me happy. Paul says that the location that matters most to you is your spiritual location. That what you really are is a follower of Jesus Christ, a meaning-filled servant of humanity, one whom God loves who just happens temporarily to be residing in Mississauga or Brampton or Milton or Etobicoke or North. My goodness, some of you drive a long way to be here. (laughs) Oakville, okay. (laughs) Joy is not a feeling. Let's just draw this to an end. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is not the same as being in a good mood. I'm really, really glad that the Bible never says be in a good mood. Or I'd be disobedient a lot, especially this weekend, right, honey? Joy is not a feeling. As Dallas Willard once said, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. It is well. It is well with my soul. That's why Paul never actually says rejoice as a command. The Bible, the command is not given to rejoice. It's to rejoice in the Lord. That grounds your joy in the one thing that cannot be shaken and cannot be taken. So what I'd like to do is just stop at this point um, to gather some of this up, to offer a prayer of thanksgiving and just an explosion of joy. And then we're going to do something a little bit different as a way of responding not just to today but to everything that we've been teaching for the past five weeks. But let's do that first. Let's pray together. God, I pray now for my brothers and sisters here in this room. And there are some people who are here this morning who are filled absolutely with gratitude and with joy. There's wonderful things that are going on in their lives. 
great relationships. They, they're involved in things that matter. Uh, great opportunities that are set up before them. And God, we don't want to take any of it for granted. So we say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I recognize too, Lord, that there will be people in the room this morning who are facing really big challenges. Life has been difficult this week, this year. A sudden change of address that wasn't welcome. The loss of a loved one, the loss of their health, problems, pain, addiction, financial worry. God, we turn to you knowing that whatever other hopes we may latch on to in the world, we always have this hope. Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. So God, would you bring joy into every heart that's here, into every circumstance, a joy that even transcends the circumstances, a joy that death itself cannot defeat. And right now, God, kind of as a stake in the ground, we want to proclaim our joy in you. We want to offer you our hearts and our worship and our gratitude, our lives, our eternities. We want to do it all in the name of the great joy bringer himself, in Jesus' name. In his name, we pray. We've moved the columns. If you've been here over the past few weeks, you remember that they were on the stage. They're now flanking the sanctuary, and we've done that with a purpose. Again, as a reminder to how we started the message, God made you unique. It's no accident that you are you. And we absolutely, absolutely need you to be you. And that's such an important message, and I'm not even sure that secular society wants to say that anymore. Our society sees no author behind the book that is your life, no architect behind the house or the purpose or the meaning of the structure and and creation that you are. One of my favorite thinkers, writers, uh, philosopher, echoed the teaching of Scripture when he said this, At each person's birth, there comes into being an eternal vocation for them, expressly for them. Kierkegaard writes, to be true to themselves in relation to this eternal calling is the highest thing a person can practice. You can do something that no one else here can do in a fashion that no one else can do it exploring and extracting your uniqueness. It excites you. It's a source of some joy. It honors God. It expands His kingdom. Galatians 6.4. In fact, will you turn with me to that verse? Galatians 6.4. I'm going to read this to you. This is a paraphrase, but you'll get the gist of it as you look in your translation. Galatians 6.4. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given and sink yourself into that. Make a careful exploration of who you are 
the work you've been doing and sink yourself into that. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to invite the worship team back to the stage. They're going to lead us in a time of worship. But rather than staying in your seat, I'm going to invite you to stand and move around the room. Specifically, what I'd like you to do is to make your way to one of the pillars that flank the sanctuary. And if looking inward, you say, I really, understanding how God has made me, my abilities, gifts, interests, and experiences, I really identify with what my church is trying to achieve in this area. I'm going to ask you to go to one of those columns, take one of the Sharpie markers that are sitting on a stool beside them, and sign your name. You see, there's names already that are there. That's from the first service. Now, realizing that God has given all of you some of the gifts and none of you all of the gifts, you're going to go to one pillar, maybe two. If you go to all four, somebody's going to cut you off at the knees to save you. (laughs) Again, just a couple of words from Scripture. Kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you. For everything comes from God and God alone, and everything lives by His power and for His glory. One of Haley's comments. I love that expression that we quoted earlier. You are one of Haley's comments. And we love to look forward to and think how God is going to use your life to shine. On the back page of your order of service, you'll find a a one-page summary of the past five weeks. Some of you are thinking, if it fit in one page, why did I sit through five hours of this? But there it is. As we're led in worship by the worship team, uh, you might want to take a minute to glance through each of those major themes. And then as you identify with one, possibly two, that you're going to make your way to the columns and sign your name. That can be your act of worship, of praise, and an outburst of joy. Let me invite the worship team to come now and lead us.